0: We're going to wrap up our series on the parables in the next couple of weeks. We've been through a long journey on this. And here's a look at where we've been. One more time, just all the different parables that we've covered so far. We've covered a lot of ground. And tonight we're dealing with one last parable that I think kind of, well, I'm going to let it speak for itself tonight, and I want to kind of just discuss it as a group. So let me start off by just, we'll go through the parable itself, Okay. Two weeks ago, we covered the parable of the persistent widow. And I said that there was something unique about that parable in that Jesus tells us up front what it is that he's telling us the parable for. You know, many parables, he doesn't come right out and say, this is the reason I'm telling you the parable. Last week, Kevin did the parable of the Good Samaritan. And again, there was a dialogue going on, as Kevin pointed out, that there was a challenge made to Jesus. And when the person says, okay, fine, I accept that. Now tell me who my neighbor is. Jesus told a parable to display neighborhood. Who is a neighbor? Today, we see another parable that's like this, where Jesus says it in response to a direct question. So here's the verse from Matthew 18. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered him, I tell you not seven times, But 77 times, or 70 times 7 times, stop there for a second before we get into the parable. Why do you think Peter is asking about how many times he should forgive his brother? What's the point of the question? We often skip right over this. We assume that Peter has said, hey, my brother has sinned against me. Should I forgive him 7 times? Where did Peter pick a number like 7? Was it because it kind of sounded holy? Is it a lucky number? Why did he pick seven? Sound like a lot or a little to you? Does seven sound like a lot? Yeah, how many times would we give them? Usually we say, second chance, I'll give you a second chance. Yeah, we even have a saying fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's almost like if I fall for the thing the second time, that's enough. Like at that point, I'm cutting you off because I'm being foolish. By continuing to let you do this. In the Old Testament, there was a number of forgiveness that was maybe not expressly stated, even though there is a verse that they got it from. But many of the rabbis commenting on the Old Testament believed that you should forgive up to three times. okay. And after that, it was probably not worth forgiving. Peter, I think, seems to be generous by saying to the Lord, how many times do you think I should forgive? Seven times? By picking the number seven, he's gone four above the Old Testament standard. Maybe if you really look at Peter's motivation here, he's trying to be a little bit of, well, he's being generous. Maybe he's trying to kiss up to the Lord a little bit. Like, hey, I've been following you around. I hear what you're saying about how free I should be with my forgiveness. So how many times do you think the number should be? Seven? Hey, I'm like doubling plus a little bit more over what, It has been said before, Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. Or as some translations say, 70 times seven times, which would be another quotation from the Bible. So the way you look at it, it could either be 77 or 70 times seven, which is 490. No matter how you look at it, Jesus is going to a number that's pretty high up there compared to what most people not only thought, but what most people had been taught that three times would be enough for you. It seems like outrageous numbers. In fact, tonight in our parable, we're going to see a number of outrageous numbers. When I started this series, I told you that you're going to see sometimes that Jesus tends to exaggerate, and most of us were a little uncomfortable with that concept. But what do you mean Jesus exaggerates? Jesus actually enjoyed hyperbole and exaggeration in his in his parables because they magnified the point. Tonight you're going to see he magnified it pretty far. First, by starting and telling Peter 490 times, which would be, well, wait a minute, that's so much higher than three. And here's the parable he tells to support that number. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. A lot of times when we see this passage, or if you're familiar with this parable, you might miss the impact of this word that people who were listening to Jesus' parable would have been immediately aware of. And that number is 10,000 talents. That's meaningless to us today. We don't know what 10,000 talents were. But here's some ideas for you to consider. Back then, you could sell a servant or a slave for about one talent. So you have to stop and ask yourself, how did a servant owe anybody 10,000 talents? To make the exaggeration even bigger, it's been recorded that at this time when you paid the annual taxation for a province like Galilee, where Jesus was probably telling the story, or to a Judean crowd which also had to pay taxes that their tax bills to neighboring tributes that they had to make would be somewhere in the neighborhood of somewhere maybe 200, 300, or up to 600 talents. So this number that he's throwing out there, 10,000 talents, is more money than the country would have to pay in taxes as a tribute. It would be like if someone says... I'm going to tell you a parable. In a the parable, there was a king and one of his servants owed him a hundred billion, million, trillion, billion dollars. And most people listening will be like, that's ridiculous. What did that guy just say? It doesn't even make any sense. There isn't, there isn't even that much money in circulation right now. People knew how much money was out there. There isn't even anybody who has that many talents, being the physical coin itself. It doesn't even exist. Ten thousand of them. That's ridiculous. But Jesus is again making his point through hyperbole, through exaggeration. Look what else doesn't seem to make sense. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all that he had be sold to repay the debt. How would that repay the debt? If one servant, one good servant, would fetch one talent, how many wives and children must he have to pay back 10,000 talents? I mean, unless the guy has 9,000 talents, 999 wives or children, he's not repaying the debt by being sold. Also, even if he didn't have that money, at least if you put the servant to work or enslave him further, he might be able to produce a return for you. But if you put him in jail, how is that going to be doing anything? So that was the other option that he could have done. He could have been sold or he could have been put in jail, but either one of them, the master is losing out a lot of money. And some people listening to Jesus' parable might have been standing here thinking, I don't even understand how they let this guy get into so much debt. How does a king let a servant owe this much money? This makes no sense. But that's part of what Jesus was setting up. The servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. hundred denarii. How much is that compared to 10,000 talents? Well, it depends on how you calculate it. And commentators who go back historically trying to figure out how much is a hundred denarii. But estimates range between 16 cents and 60 cents. Maybe, let's call it a buck. So you go from a guy who owes a hundred billion, trillion, whatever dollars there are, more money that is in circulation in the country to a guy who owes like a buck, maybe less than a buck. He went to his servant, found one of his servants who owed him money. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Here's actually a servant that could pay He just said, be patient with me. And isn't this exactly what the guy had done just a few seconds before? The servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The parable kind of makes sense to us now with that kind of background. The parable makes sense to us to understand huge amounts owed by one, pitifully small amounts owed by the other. And there's like a lack of forgiveness. And here's a punchline, by the way Jesus comes right out and steps out of the parable and says, This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. What's Jesus saying? Is he saying that forgiveness from God depends on forgiveness of other people? Is he actually, let's take it a step further, is he actually saying, if you are not a forgiving person, salvation will not come to you because my Heavenly Father won't forgive you? Can we take that meaning from the parable? No? Okay, so you're correct that in parable interpretation we have to not go beyond what he teaches, right? Do you find this in conflict with his teaching? Just the fact that we does not necessarily talk about salvation, about just the relationship in general. Okay. Let's step back and look at the different meanings in the parables and come right back to the question again. Let's look at it from a different angle. If you were to translate, what does this parable mean to us today? When he's telling about the servants, the large amounts of money, the small amounts of money, how would you make that into a modern day example? Do you see in it the forgiveness he's talking about us? Do you see the parallel? You see, Jesus is laying out this case. You're like the wicked servant, the unmerciful servant. Each of us is indebted to our master in huge amounts that we could never repay. Okay, There's that parallel there. We can't repay the amount. It's too big. Here you have a master who through his mercy cancels the debt in the same way that Jesus has canceled our debt. Okay, That's fairly easy to follow. doesn't take too many leaps for us to make those connections out of the parable that we see. But Jesus could have told the parable a different way. He didn't have to tell us the second part he could have stopped and said it's like a master and made the focus of the parable about a master. This is like a master who had a servant that owed him millions and millions and millions of dollars and when the servant begged him to give up because he couldn't repay it, the master, being a good master, canceled the debt. End of parable. That would be the end of it. And it would be called the parable of the merciful master. And the focus would have been on the master. But this parable doesn't focus on the master. It follows the life of the servant, and it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Because that servant, when he dealt with the merciful master, the merciful God, who forgave him everything that he owed just through mercy, turned around and acted unmercifully by demanding something small when he had been forgiven from so much. That's why I think the focus of this parable is about us. Because that's what we do. Haven't been forgiven so much, we seem to have trouble forgiving other people of small things. Now, I don't know how small they are, maybe they're big things, but that's what this parable is talking about. It's focusing on a different person. And then he tells us exactly at the end this is how your heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive others. So the question comes back again. Does that mean that if we don't forgive, we lose? I mean, look what he does to this guy at the end. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants, other people that we know, just as I had on you? I mean, you could hear God asking that question. Shouldn't you be forgiving other people the way I forgave you? In his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. This is the same kind of... uh, Ending to the parable that ends badly for a lot of parables we've looked at. It's, they throw them out to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, throw them out to be with the unbelievers, throw them out to be dismembered or beaten. This one is turn them over to the jailers to be tortured. They're all synonymous with a bad place. In some parables, you could say it's directly synonymous with hell. In this parable, maybe it's just a lot of torture. Either way, not a happy place for you to be turned over. And that question still sticks out there. But does it make you feel uncomfortable that there's something that you can do that would disqualify you from his forgiveness to say, if you don't do this, you actually lose the mercy I gave you? Which is what's happening here. The master shows the mercy. The unmerciful servant does the bad thing by not showing mercy himself. The master seems to then, when he finds out about it, take back the mercy and say, oh yeah, shouldn't you have had mercy? In his anger, he turned him over to the jailers to be tortured, which is kind of what he was going to get before. It seems like the master took back the mercy. Do we worship a God who says, uh, you know, I'm merciful with an asterisk next to it and a little footnote that says like, see also, you better be merciful too. Otherwise, uh, subject to forfeiture? Taking a look at uh, the master, how he went through and forgave. It's like the gi- a gift, really. By forgiving that debt, it was a gift right there. By the way, the servant acted, it and showed that he rejected the gift. Because if he accepted the gift, he would go through and want to pass it on as well. So, in a sense, you could say he rejected the gift, and so it's, the master's not really taking it back. He's just keeping it since the gift was rejected. So, you're saying he never really received the mercy of the gift? because he clearly remained unmerciful himself. Yes, yeah, He rejected it. He didn't want to actually change himself, actually allow to come upon him. Okay. Since he rejected it. He still gets with, with the it. Anyone else want to weigh in on it? I mean, for a lot of people, whole churches have split over this issue of whether what is this passage saying? Is it saying that if you don't forgive other people, you lose the forgiveness yourself? Yeah. I was thinking more at the beginning, I don't know if this is or anything, but how he says, you know, how he owed him so much money, and he says, go and sell everything that you have to try to pay me back. Isn't that what he said to the rich guy, like, go and give all that you have? Let's go back to that. He said, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children be sold. When he fell on his knees, he said, be patient, I'll pay back everything. The master took pity on him and just canceled the debt. It, he didn't ask him to do anything. That's what makes it so troubling. Right, but he said, you know what? I changed my mind. You can't ever pay this back. Just, I'll tell you what, it's canceled. By the way, canceling the debt is you know, significant. Normally, you'd actually mark on there like canceled and here you go. It's, you're free. It's a pretty significant thing to do, especially when you owe hundreds and hundreds of times more money than there are in circulation. I mean, it's a pretty big number. Again, probably exaggerated. Okay. Okay, let's say that he's using the parable to wake people up and show that that God cares about this. Okay, so my thought is, let's look at this. Because one of the things we've said is that when you're dealing with analyzing parables, you can't go too far. You can't go outside the parable sometimes and base doctrine solely on a parable because it may just be a story. Okay, I considered that. But how about this? How about when Jesus said, pray the Lord's Prayer, pray it like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Here we go. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors sounds like his parable doesn't just come in a vacuum that actually part of the Lord's prayer says let's enter into a transaction Lord you forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors they're connected you do this part as we do this part that as is kind of troubling it almost sounds like they have to be happening simultaneously or they won't happen together now, I'm not going to dwell on the, the, the language and look at the Greek word that was translated as, "as" because we don't have to. Jesus actually does it for us. As if it isn't enough that he puts it in the Lord's Prayer, right after that, in the same verse that he's delivering in the Lord's Prayer, he highlights forgiveness one more. Like he just said, pray this thing, and you guys know when we did our prayer series, we spent one week on almost every line. There's so much wisdom in the Lord's Prayer. But the one that the Lord focuses on the most is the forgiveness. Almost like, if you didn't hear me, let me say it one more time really clearly. Not only should you pray this prayer and pray the words, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors, but after you're done with the prayer, let me remind you, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins even if they don't ask for it? I don't see any part in there that says they have to ask. And that troubles me. And That's why I'm saying, you know, you guys should be more troubled, I think, because this last sentence, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I grew up in a John 3.16 world. I grew up in a, hey, all I got to do is say the prayer, Right? All I gotta do is believe in you. You didn't ask I mean, sure you want me to change. Of course you want me to be good. Of course you need, you know, certain things. Maybe a little tithing action on the side, you know, maybe a little mission trip once in a while. Maybe I'll do some ministry. I mean, whatever it takes, but I don't recall that there's some things in the thing that if I don't do them, you might change your mind. I don't really remember if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive yours. That's not, that's not the guy I raised my hand for at that rally. What's that all about? Clearly, you're as stumped as I am. But I think sometimes you have to experience forgiveness first in order for you to forgive. You know, it says, like, you know, we love him because he first loved us. Like, he first made the initiative, and now it's just up to us to come to him what he's already done. Okay. I agree with that, too. Because I think that while it's probably true in our in our in our experience that if we're the type of people who cannot forgive other people that maybe we're not really truly understanding what Christ has said that's a true statement but I don't know that that's exactly what he's saying in total that's like a subset of it that you can tell where a person is by how they act Jesus told us that you can always tell someone by their fruit so if you see mercy and forgiveness coming out, you probably know that that person has either experienced mercy or they are merciful. But I don't know that that's the total group he's talking about. That's probably a subset of it, because there are people, like you said, who maybe struggle with forgiveness. And that's one of the things that we have to deal with. And I said earlier in our time about this, that you know forgiveness is a subject you could spend, in some cases, in counseling for years, trying to forgive certain things. So we're not going to deal with the whole subject of forgiveness tonight. But the question that you have to kind of ponder and think about for a moment is, one, is Jesus that serious about forgiveness? That we actually might put our salvation in jeopardy? Is that what he's saying? Even if he's still exaggerating, not in just the parable, but in the Lord's prayer too. Even if he's trying to drive his point home, it means that it's so near and dear to him that he really has got to make the point over and over. But the other issue that we got to address is, what is it that we have to then do? Who in our own lives do we have to forgive? Maybe even sight unseen. Yeah. It's forgiveness is something that's not like, okay, I decided to forgive you. Like, I decided to forgive that person. Um, okay, boom, you forgive, forgive that person, right? But then tomorrow you wake up and you feel the same feelings, like, of, like you know, like, not hatred maybe, but like, it, it comes back to you. I and mean, you have to giving your heart all, all over again because it's not like it's healed right away like it's not like up again and it's gone like whatever you have in your heart against that person so maybe it, like, it's a process and you have to deal with it like as long as it takes 77 times to, to finally like, in your heart yeah. give I you think it there's it. a line though. like you, you can't just forgive someone and go oh everything's fine Like I, I still think that there could be a like a, a dislike in with them, you know, and just go, hey, you know what? Like say someone hurt my, my family. You know, yeah, you know what, like, I forgive them. But it's like if they come around, you know, and it's like I mean there's like there's, a, there's like lines between like forgiveness and still not liking them, you know. Like you could not like what they've done. And it's like and you can let it go and you can forgive them, but it's not gonna like be their best friend, you know? Well let's be clear, the Lord's standard of forgiveness, at least the way he describes his forgiveness Is a forgiveness and a forgetfulness. To say that, you know, I've separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, or I have, I have, I remember it no more, or I've removed it from you and it's no longer there. That's his kind of forgiveness. I agree though with Lena that that it's harder to have that kind of forgiveness ourselves. For some people, it is a process. Another thing, Jesus is describing what kind of effort and how long it may take. In this case, we have somebody who clearly was not forgiving. It wasn't even could he or could he not forgive, but that's probably why Jesus made the, the example so ridiculous. I mean, it'd be one thing if the guy was forgiven for millions and millions of dollars of debt and also was owed like a significant amount of money. where he said, I just can't let that go, it's so hard. But he was owed a buck. And he showed that he didn't even struggle with whether I should forgive or whether forgiveness is a process. He just didn't do it. And that's why that thing keeps coming back and haunting me about why is the Lord being so difficult? Why is he being so harsh? What does he have to tell us about the importance of forgiveness that we could actually lose our forgiveness as a consequence? Forgiveness is a hard matter, though. The real issue for us tonight, too, is what can we do in light of those words? What does forgiveness mean for us? Who is it that we hold onto in our lives? Who's wronged us? Who have we wronged? And like I said, we can't go into dealing with all of those issues tonight, but the parable really stands as a stark reminder that we need to deal with other people on these subjects. We need to deal with God directly on these things. And say, maybe I need to have my eyes opened as to who I need to forgive. I know that many of us tend to feel that we're doing the right thing in a lot of what we do. And when people wrong us, it's very hard for us to give forgiveness these days. We feel more justified, like we're doing okay, by saying, you know what? That person did something wrong, I'm just going to cut them off. Maybe we're not going to go after them and grab them by the throat like the unmerciful servant did and choke them. But we just ostracize them. We hold the grudge. We just feel wronged and we don't let go of that. Okay? And as it was indicated, maybe when Ryan and you asked the question, I don't see anywhere in there where it says, when they come to you and ask for forgiveness. Although I think that's healthy. I don't know that we need to seek out every single person And just say I forgive you. Like they don't like for what? I don't even know. You know, I mean it may just be in our mind. You know, but that's not the point. I'm not giving a talk on how to forgive. I I I'm not qualified to do that because I've held grudges and I still hold grudges. I still have difficulty forgiving certain people in my life, even after many many years. I've struggled recently with. A business person who has made attacks on me, who's a Christian. I I can't even put it together sometimes. Because that person has really kind of gone after me and tried to tried to hurt me, tried to take me down to save themselves in a business context. You know, there's moments where I feel like, you know what I want to do is I just I just want to hear from somebody. Oh, yeah, he got hit by a bus yesterday. I'm like, yes. But I have to sit in front of God and deal with that all the time. Because I'm opening the Sermon on the Mount and I'm reading where it says that you need to love your enemies and pray for your enemies. And I have to deal with that and say, I need to pray for this person right now. Not that they're going to go away. Not that they're going to leave me alone. Just pray for them and their well-being and who they are. And pray for their relationship with the Lord. And pray for me, because I may be wrong. And I've been convicted to do something I would never in a million years do, and that is to seek this person out and say, you and I need to sit down and talk, not about the problems that we have, just about how you are a brother in Christ, and I am a brother in Christ, and we need to resolve this in Christ. We may never resolve the business issues that you feel have brought this on, but I need to at least pray with you about this. I can't bring myself to do it. I want to see this guy. I want to run the other way. Can I forgive that person? I'm trying because I want to take the weight of these words seriously. I just don't know that I can do it. Jesus said that blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Take a look at that. That's Matthew 5, 7. The merciful are the ones who get mercy. Hebrews 10, 30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Quoting from the Old Testament. The context of Hebrews is a little bit different than our discussion tonight, but the statement remains true. A lot of times we hold a grudge, we hold on to things, we feel like we have to. This is the only way for us to deal with what we believe we're owed, the kind, of, the kind of debt that we're owed from somebody else, that we have a right to demand it from somebody else, like the servant who grabbed the other one by the throat and said, I have a right to expect my dollar from you because you owe it to me. We often feel like we are owed things. We're owed a duty not to be sinned against. Don't sin on me. I deserve better than that. And that parable reminds us that God could equally hold us the same way and say, oh yeah, well I'm God and I deserve a creation that doesn't sin against me. And you collectively as a creation have sinned a hundred billion trillion times and I'm canceling that debt so... All debts are off. Everyone's supposed to be forgiven. Can we do it? In the end, the Lord says, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. I'm the one who's going to take this out. It's not for you. For you is to forgive as you've been forgiven. In this case, we have a parable that may not be hard to understand, but maybe very, very hard to apply. Peter was patting himself on the back, thinking, I'll go an extra mile. I'll forgive a few more times. And Jesus says, I got one better for you to consider. If you don't forgive, you may find yourself in a place where you get no forgiveness. I know the Lord is more merciful than even his own words that he has for us. When we say he's infinite in his mercies, I hope that's true. I hope that when we don't forgive, he'll still be forgiving, but he leaves us this word and you guys got to deal with it. That's for you to decide what it means. I can't answer it beyond that because his words aren't limited to the parable. They're also in his direct teaching, which means we have to deal with them seriously. We can't just write them off as saying, well, he was telling them a difficult story to get their attention. Yeah, he was, but it seems like he was also giving them a difficult truth at the same time. Let's pray. Lord, if we were honest with your word, we would understand that we are far from grasping it. And like in all the many other parables that we've studied, Lord, you have given us difficult truths. And that's probably why you spoke them in parables. So that we could think about the story and struggle with it. And tonight is no different. The meaning seems clear to us. But the message is difficult to swallow. Lord, let your Holy Spirit be the one that adds wisdom and knowledge, because this is a difficult topic. Lord, we know that your mercies are greater than we can understand, and I pray that in this particular instance, that's the case. I pray that your commandment for us to forgive others, that even when we fail, you will still forgive us. I pray that you not take away your grace and mercy on account of our broken and feeble efforts to do the same as you have done for us. And even though you've done far more than we deserve, Lord, we struggle with our own worth, our own pride and arrogance when we evaluate what we deserve from other people. Break us of that. Show us how to be more like you, humble and also able to give huge amounts of mercy to everyone, deserved or not. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us, that we are yours pray these things in your name. Amen.